Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Oscar nominated screenwriter John Gatins. In this episode, John speaks about initially coming to Hollywood to be an actor before landing a chance opportunity to rewrite a high school football movie called Varsity Blues. This would launch a screenwriting career that would place John as one of the most sought-after script doctors in Hollywood, working on films ranging from Behind Enemy Lines to Power Rangers to the forthcoming Aladdin 2. But it also enabled John to champion his passion project, a complex character study about an alcoholic commercial airline pilot called Flight, which would go on to star Denzel Washington and garner John an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Screenplay in 2013. John also describes growing up in New York and how his mother landing a job in the Vassar College Advancement Office changed the trajectory of his life and that of his family. Due to Vassar providing tuition assistance to the children of Vassar staff who were admitted to the school, John and his siblings were able to access a college experience they could never have afforded otherwise. This gift has been the inspiration behind John and his wife Ling, whom he met at Vassar and who was also a financial aid recipient, becoming parent chairs of annual giving at Harvard Westlake. Ling and John see their volunteer leadership as a way to pay forward at Harvard Westlake the great privileges of educational opportunity that had been afforded to them at Vassar. John Gatons on the life and craft of a screenwriter and the teachers and filmmakers who've helped his words take flight. This is The Supporting Cast. John Gatons, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And, and we've spent a lot of time together over the years at various events and things, and you're a volunteer leader, which I will get to later. But it's really great to be able to have this conversation about you, about the work that you do, and, and about more about your upbringing as well. So my first question, though, is about the present. So we are kind of feeling like we're at the tail end of this pandemic, yet there could be another variant in Europe somewhere that we're, we're all waiting. But the first question I always want to ask is just about you. How are you doing personally, you and Ling and your three kids. We're good. Yeah, everybody's kind of adapted to whatever extent they've had to. We obviously went through, our oldest is a sophomore in college, and mm -hmm. he, you know, his senior year was completely, of high school was, you know, we had the COVID graduation, we had an applying to college and trying to see colleges and everything was kind of completely off kilter because of COVID. And our other two did Zoom school and he, the oldest guy did Zoom college for a year, and yeah, it's a lot. But uh, but better now. Now seems good. He's in college on campus in a dorm with roommates and live classes and all. He plays on two different soccer teams and a volleyball team and has a radio show and he's living his best life. So next, I want to talk to you. You're a writer. You're a professional writer, and so I want to get to a bit about the type of projects that you write as a screenwriter. And I think we all envision the screenwriter kind of working on a passion project that's completely their own and are lucky enough to sell it and it gets made and it, it gets praise. And you had 
you've had a few of those situations, one that ended up in an Oscar nomination. But first, I want to get to the other types of assignments that writers like you get, which are ones that you are either assigned or ones that you have to fight for that are pre-existing IP, where you go in and, and you've had projects like whether it's Aladdin or Power Rangers or Kong. Kind of, Can you talk about those types of opportunities that you've been given and what your role is when you take on a project like that? Well, I'm going to back up to say that, you know, I came from New York to LA in 1990 after I graduated college yeah. and I wanted to be an actor and I did that with not a lot of success for about six years or so. And then I went away and did a summer theater program, New York Stage and Film in New York. And when I came back, I wrote this screenplay thinking I would make the movie myself and that I was still young looking enough to play the lead guy in the movie and make it for $50. And that turned into, uh, it was a screenplay called Smells Like Teen Suicide. It was a dark teen comedy. And people read it and really liked it. And it kind of became like a, a spec script that everybody was reading. And... I got an interview to rewrite a 17-year-old script called Varsity Blues, which was this kind of mm. comedy, like a high school football comedy set in Texas. And I went in and pitched a bunch of crazy ideas, not thinking they'd ever hire me because I wasn't really a screenwriter. I was an actor who'd written one script, but the director really liked me and they hired me and it was really scary. And I didn't really know what I was doing because I had written one screenplay once. So the idea of rewriting someone else's screenplay was really daunting, but I kind of... Yeah. I just did it and I started over because I didn't really know how to write inside someone else's script. I didn't even really know how to type. It was really kind of nuts and I didn't know how to use a screenwriting <laughs> software program. So I kind of just started writing a movie about Texas high school football. So that movie got made and was a success and I kind of yeah. stayed working with that director and his producing partner. And many years later, a scandal would be named after that movie. Yeah, true, true. I got a lot of <laughs> phone calls and texts that day. Um, so... It's interesting because it, it falls into your question because I became a, a script doctor, if you will, or yeah. like a uh, a rewriter because I stayed on the movie through production, which just taught me so much. I mean, to be there to watch the movie happen, to adjust the script as we went, to be in rehearsals with the actors and to be on set. It was like a real unbelievable graduate school that I got to go through on that movie, which was, I realized how rare and exceptional that experience was. But, you know, after that movie, Paramount was the company that made that movie. And so I continued to kind of work with them. Sherry Lansing, who ran the studio at the time, had this book and a script for a movie called Hardball, but she didn't think it worked. So I read it and I had a new take on it. So I did a rewrite on that movie and then stayed on that movie and did all the doctor work through the production of that movie and was on set in Chicago shooting that movie. So I had kind of an interesting experience how I got into being that person who was able to be helpful, not only in getting a good idea that a studio would buy, but to get the script in shape to be able to be shot and then to kind of doctor it along the way as the film got shot. And like the first time, is it generally you have to kind of reorganize it or reformulate it or rewrite it in your mind? Or are there times where you think there are just certain areas where it needs a bit of improvement or does it depend on the project? Well, it's interesting because 
if you sit down to write a screenplay of an idea in your mind, I always say like you get to play God, you're the creator. It's like everybody does what you say they do. They say what you tell them to say. You get to pull all the strings. It's amazing. But as soon as you sell it or go into business with people, it's like suddenly other people get to play God. So you have a lot of gods sometimes. And then when you cast somebody, you get new gods and new gods continue to appear and you have to try to appease all these gods to keep everything going. And a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of money and a lot of ego and a lot of a lot at stake and it can get kind of insane, but you try to keep everybody happy to a certain extent. So like actors come in and say, I would never say this, or he would never say that, or where am I coming from? And why did I do this? And how do I feel about her? And, which isn't the thing you're thinking about when you're writing it initially, or you're thinking, yes, it's a story about a guy who's a soccer player. It's like, yeah, but what about his uncle who lives next door? It's like, you have to kind of account for everybody who has a hand in the movie. So in the first blush of a screenplay, sometimes you don't focus on those things, but as you get further along into casting and things like that, you say, is there a bigger, something bigger for them? Is it more important? Is she a more vital character in the story? Mm -hmm. And we should try to shine some light on it because it can affect casting. And they have a life of their own, these movies and different things need help along the way. So. so is that one of the lessons you learned in Varsity Blues that you may have this vision for what the story should be, but as you let it go, you have to kind of suppress your ego a bit and know that there are going to be all of these other people yeah. who impact where the story goes and what the movie ends up becoming. Yeah. I mean, when an actor comes to you and says, you're the writer, right? And you say, yeah. You say, why is she saying that right now? You go, um, let me think about that. Or, you know, you try to like think on your feet to be able to be like, well, maybe there's something else she could say or try alternate this or alternate that or, oh, we have a good opportunity or we really like this or this character's doing great. Could we find something more for them to do? It's like you take a lot of shots at things because you rewrite the script again in editing. And I've yeah. been fortunate enough to kind of get involved a lot of times with the directors and producers where they keep me around and want to know my input and to be in the, the editing room a little bit. You know, So it's interesting to see how your script continues to change based on performances and locations and we got to take time out of the movie or it's too long or it feels flat here. It's like, so they continue to evolve. It's not just you write a script, go shoot it and it's done. It's this strange living thing that continues to grow. Are there certain beats that you think are kind of universal to every film? Like there's certain times of the movie where there's going to be conflict and then that conflict needs to be resolved or does it really kind of just depend on the project? That's such a good question because I've never taken a screenwriting course but I've heard so much from young people who come to me and say, well, you know, took this screenwriting class in college or in graduate school or the script's 120 pages and on page 30, like there has to be, you know, this is where there's a conflict. So I guess to some extent, people believe it to be a three-act structure, which sometimes I'm like, mm, right. I believe and don't believe, but it's in the parlance of how you talk about a script in development where people say, oh, I, I feel like the end of the second act is is like, you know, it's muddy. We need to clean that up or... You know, so I guess so. I, I give a modified answer to that. It's not the kind of writing form that I think should have too many hard and fast rules because I've seen them broken a lot. And usually it's when stuff is really cool and crafty. You're like, wow, they threw everything out the window and just made something really cool. Yeah. Memento so, just went backwards, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, did you see Nomadland? I did. Yeah. That's a crazy movie. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting movie that you just go, wow, how did she think of that? Like, that was really clever and moving. It had an atmosphere. Like, 
the star of that movie is the atmosphere. It's like the way it made me feel watching it. I was just kind of hooked in. And I remember watching Pulp Fiction when I was a young kid and watching it jump around time-wise and mm -hmm. just kind of stunned that a, a movie could do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now on the other side of it is I've written a lot of sports movies and sports movies tend to have certain things that kind of happen. You have struggles and you have to overcome things and yeah. there has to be emotional and you have to kind of deliver on the promise of leave us in a good place. It's like, do they win? Don't they win? It's yeah. like you can't make a sports movie when they don't win the big game. And then people started making sports movies where they didn't win the big game. And you're like, wow, that's really, that's really clever. So what about an issue like Aladdin? So Aladdin comes out, the live action Aladdin with Will Smith from Disney, and there's talks about an Aladdin 2. And mm -hmm. someone like you comes in, you're, I, I believe, working with a writing partner on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk about the process of you kind of pitching an idea yeah. for what Aladdin 2 should be. Like, what's that yeah. conversation like? Well, it was interesting because I don't even know if I'd worked for Disney before, but I kind of knew everybody there and I knew the producers and they kind of said, would you be interested in developing an Aladdin 2 idea? And I said, sure. So, and I was working with a partner, Andrea Burloff, who's really smart, incredible writer and director. She'd done Straight Outta Compton and, you know, she wrote and directed a movie called The Kitchen and she and I have known each other and been friends and peers for a really long time and I kind of reached out to her and said, let's, what do you think about this? And she said, well, let's kick it around. So we tried to come up with an idea, but it's interesting and Disney would tell you this too. It's like, it's very hard to make a sequel to a Disney movie because they wrap things up so tightly. It's right. like they, they tell these fairy tales that really kind of come to a very resounding closure. And so to try to unwind that bow at the end and try to find a continuing story is a bit of a challenge. So I was in a room with a bunch of writers. We both were, Andrea and I both were, where it's like we pitched lots of ideas for a couple of days, you know, with other writing teams that were in there and other writers and executives from Disney. And because Disney... It's amazing. I mean, it's the biggest entertainment company we have. and But they have a brand that they have to try to maintain and try to keep it inside the canon of what they do, which is also a challenge. So we had so many ideas that were crazy. Some of them were really derivative and some of them were really two way out there. So it was hard, but it was... Hard to be as ir irreverent within sort of a, a Disney landscape? You can. I mean, to an extent you can. Yeah. And the Pixar movies, like nobody does it better than they do. Yeah, they're um, amazing. And they have a crazy process, which I've never been involved in, but they really have a way to tell stories. What about kind of finding time in your day to get the writing done? You have shared with me this <laughs> phrase, which you call Kill Wednesday. Oh, yeah. And it sounds yeah. very morbid, but it's not. It's As I understand it, it's kind of how do you motivate yourself on a random Wednesday yeah. to get the pages written that you need to get written? Can yeah. you shed any light on kind of what your process is? I mean, we all I've had deadlines. Harvard Wessex students <laughs> yeah. need a deadline to get a paper done. We all are trying to, to get stuff done. How does it work in your world? Oh, that's another good question. I wonder if I know the answer. I'll give one answer, which is you're never not working. You know, it's like even though you and I are having this conversation right now, it's like there's a movie that we're working on right now and we're in the flow of writing it. But I know that there's a sequence I have to write. So it's constantly kind of at play in my brain. It's mm. like, and there'll be times throughout the day where I'm like, oh, wait, 
what if he goes and sees his mom and has this moment? Like that would be interesting. And that's a great way to transition this other thing. Sometimes I have to text myself, you know, and say, hey, remember that thing about his mom and blah, blah, blah. It's never ending. The hard part of it is you constantly have the feeling of your homework isn't done. Yeah. It's like, cause it, it nags a little bit. Cause it's kind of hard to say, okay, from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., I'm gonna sit in my chair and be really creative. It's not like breaking rocks. It's not like I have to take this wall down. It's like, okay, I just have to like literally take brick by brick and walk away with it. But it's like when you're trying to write inventive scenes with great dialogue and good flow, it's like you hope you hit the right moment. You hope it shows up when you sit down. And sometimes you have to write through it. Like, you know, I have a friend, Scott Frank, who always says, the only way out is through. Even if you're not feeling it, you have to kind of sit there and write stuff sometimes that you're like, I know this isn't it, but if I keep going, I'll find it. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes you got to walk away. And sometimes you do have to kill Wednesday because Wednesday's a day that's just not going to be a day where you're going to get anything uh, <laughs> that you're going to be happy with done. Are there things away from your desk that you do to try to kind of breed that creativity in your mind, whether it's kind of exercising or taking a walk or... Exercise is always good for your brain, always. Because like I said, if I'm working on a project, yeah. I'm always working on it regardless of what I'm doing. So it's like if I go for a run or take a yoga class or watch another movie or hang out with friends, it's like it's always kind of there. And sometimes I like when people say to me, so what are you working on? And I'll say, ah... Uh, Sometimes I don't want to talk about it. just say, oh, I'm working on this thing, you know, whatever. But other times I'll say, well, what's it about? And if I'm in the mood, I kind of pitch them it a little bit. And it's yeah. kind of helpful to see their reaction, to see if they think it's interesting or if they ask questions that I go, oh, that's an interesting thing. Maybe that needs to be answered inside of that. So you never know. Good ideas can come from anywhere or good moments of inspiration come from any place you're at in your life at any particular moment. So I want to get to the movie Flight, which was sort of your script, your baby that ended up becoming a, a big hit and earned a couple of Academy Award nominations. I asked you about the film once and you said it really started with your fascination with plane crashes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so if you can kind of take us to a kind of what drove that fascination oh. and then how from there did you get this idea of a, a sort of a plane flipping upside down? It's interesting because like a lot of people, I don't love to fly. I never have. And I've had times where I've been really uncomfortable flying and other times where it doesn't bother me as much. But it was back in like 1999, I had to fly to Slovakia to work on a movie called Behind Enemy Lines where I was doing rewrite work, production rewrite work. So they were just about to shoot the movie and they started shooting the movie while I was there. And I was flying back and I was in first class because it was work. They always fly you first class. And uh, there was a pilot deadheading back from wherever, and he was dressed in his pilot blues, I think they call it, or whatever. He was sitting next to me, and he was super chatty. He was like, really wanted to chat, like, oh, where are you coming from, and blah, blah, blah. And I just didn't really want to talk to this guy, and I'm a pretty <laughs> friendly guy. But I was like, why do I not want to talk to this guy? And then I had a moment of like, oh, because he's a pilot. It's like... I don't want to know anything about this guy. Like, I want to just believe that my pilot is a guy who's just, his only goal is to get me to where I'm supposed to go. And I was like, I don't want to know that your personal life's a mess or that you're going through an awful divorce or you hate everybody or you're an alcoholic. And I was like, wait a second. I was like, an alcoholic pilot, commercial airline pilot, that's an interesting movie character. And that was like the initial kind of idea of like, what would a movie look like if a guy was really in the last throes of a bad addiction issue? But he was a commercial airline pilot, and what if that plane had an issue and he was forced to do something kind of miraculous? And he was able to pull it off. 
And so that was the basic kernel of that idea. And I started writing it on spec, which at that point was... I'm sorry, what, is, what does it mean to write on spec? means like I'm not pitching that idea to a studio. I'm going to write it for me mm. and kind of be in full control of it. And so how did this idea about, you know, for those who haven't seen the movie in a while, the movie starts off where Denzel Washington's character is in this harrowing flight. Mm -hmm. uh, everything is going wrong. And in order to safely land the plane, he decides to flip the plane upside down, which sounds like, oh, that's a insane idea. How could that ever be? <laughs> true and there was a kernel of truth i guess yeah. to this scenario look the fun thing about being a writer sometimes is you have to do research which if you like doing that kind of thing is really interesting so my fear of flying and then coming up with this idea made me read as much as i could about plane crashes and you know some of them are very famous some of them are not that well known there's a crazy website called Last Words where they have actual audio files of the black box of planes that didn't make it where you mm. hear the flight crew talking to each other and like what's going on and what the issue is. And they also have transcripts of those black box recordings sometimes. I just started looking through so many of them and my sister, one of her best friends is married to a pilot who I knew and I reached out to him and I said, hey, listen, I'm writing this movie about an alcoholic commercial airline pilot. And he paused and he went, oh, he said, yeah, I knew a guy. So every pilot I spoke to <laughs> said the same thing to me. That's they were like, oh, disconcerting. yeah, I knew a guy. And so anyway, it, I, I did exhaustive, ghoulish kind of research about these plane crashes. And uh, it's fascinating. It's like endlessly, endlessly fascinating. And I told him that I was really fascinated by this. Al Haynes was this pilot. He was on this plane that was a brand new plane that had this issue where this piece of the plane like broke off and went through the motor and it killed one engine on one side and they had just taken off from Iowa, I think, and they had to try to turn the plane around and land it. And it was just such a crazy story because when a plane has an issue, they try to put the flight crew in touch with the guy who's done the most test hours in that plane on the phone. And there, and I think it was Al Haynes who was on the plane as a passenger. Air traffic control was trying to get them in touch with him. And he came up and knocked on the door. And wow. they opened the door and they were like, you're looking for Al Haynes. I'm <sighs> Al Haynes. I'm actually on the plane. He got in the plane with them, in the cockpit with them, and they tried to get this disabled plane to land. And they almost completely pulled it off. There was like over 300 people on this enormous plane. And I think 170 people survived, but it was a bad crash. But it's remarkable because there's so much detail in what happened there and what they knew the problem, what the plane was, and how they tried to use the thruster to control the plane because they had no trim control of this plane. So I told this pilot that. I said, look, you know, I'm really looking into that crash. And he said, you should look at this Alaska crash from 2001. And so then I went down this whole road of this crash of this Alaska Airlines plane, which was remarkable. And that's, I used a combination of those two crashes to recreate a scenario where this plane had this issue with this elevator, which is this little wing on the back of the wing of the plane that controls the up down of the nose. Mm -hmm. And the tail screw had snapped and fixed the plane in like a down position. So the plane wanted to nosedive and they were fighting it, fighting it, fighting it. And at one point in fighting it, the plane kind of rolled over and it was flying upside down. And the pilots were saying to each other, the young pilot was in the left seat, I think, and the 
older captain was in the right seat and the left seat guy was like, we need to go back over. And the other guy said, at least inverted, we're flying, which this pilot explained to me, he said, you can feel flight when you're in flight, when you're on a plane, you can feel when the plane is flying, you get it, we're in flight. But when it's out of flight, meaning it's out of trim and you would feel it in the plane, you'd be like, we're not flying. It wouldn't be the feeling of flight. Yeah. But when they were upside down, they felt like they had flight. So they rolled it back over and they lost control and the plane went into the ocean off of Port Wyneme and everyone was lost. But all the pilots in the world kind of look through the NTSB report when a plane goes down because they want to know what happened. Right. And he said, you know, we all looked through it and we realized that had they known what the problem with the plane was, which how could they, but if they had known that they were fixed in this down position, they probably could have had stable flight upside down and taken the plane down with control over the water and then maybe flipped it over at the last moment and tried to land it on the ocean. Now, look, that's a kind of fantastical version, and I'm not a pilot. Yeah. But it was interesting because we did a lot of Q&As, and I had a lot. I remember being in Arizona, and a guy stood up in an audience of 500 people to ask a question. He said, look, I flew for United for 31 years. He's like, it's impossible to fly that plane inverted and blah, 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 whatever. A guy on the other side stands up and said, I flew for Delta for 26 years, and actually it is possible. And they wow. have this like – so it created a lot of interesting conversation amongst pilots and – when I was flying to do press for that movie, which I did back and forth across the country in Louisiana, all over the place, and they figured out who I was. So a lot of times they were like, hey, are you John Gatons? I'm like, yeah. They're like, the pilot wants to chat with you. I'm like, really? Wow. So it's like, I'd be in the galley and the guy would come out of the cockpit. He's like, hey, I'm blah, blah, blah. It's like, so you wrote flight. He was like, yeah, no, it's interesting. And he'd want to have a whole conversation. They all knew the flight that I was, that, that they all, they were like Alaska, right? And I was like, yeah, I did pull from that quite a bit. And, the whole time I was thinking, can't you just fly the plane to New York and we could talk about this when we get there? Do we really want to chat in the galley? I don't about want to know this? anything about you. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, I don't want to know. Just please just get us to where we're going. And so you, during this process, you're also, you have to write this scene too. It's yeah. not just the kind of, yeah. wow, that's an interesting concept. So yeah. are, are you picking up the jargon uh, yeah. of all of these technical terms and what yeah. levers they need to pull and turn mm -hmm. to the left mm -hmm. and all these types of things. Absolutely. I learned about all kinds of things, pickle switches and yeah. pilots really control a plane when it's on the ground with their feet, which you don't know. Mm. You always think like, oh, they have a steering wheel. It's like they don't. They control the plane with their feet when they're taking off. All these interesting things that I didn't know, but we had a tech advisor. We shot the movie in Atlanta and... We had tech advisors from Delta and we used their flight simulators because Denzel uh, and Brian Garrity got to work in a real flight simulator to kind of get a better idea of what everything does and what it's like to actually be in a cockpit of a real commercial airliner. So it was great because I was able to run it by the tech advisors all the time to say, what about this? What about that? And Robert Zemeckis, who directed the movie, is a pilot. He has a couple oh, planes. Like he can actually fly. So he knows wow. all about flying. So I think that was part of his fascination with the script too, was like, wow, this is really interesting because he's has a fascination with flying. So you mentioned two people. There's Denzel Washington, who I'm sure is key to this movie becoming oh, kind of an adult drama, not sure what the audience yeah. is going to be for something like this, to suddenly going, oh, we can, we can sell this movie. And then there's Robert Zemeckis, who you yeah. mentioned before, when you're the writer, you're sort of playing God. When the movie's being shot, the director is sort of the God of, of the project. Yeah. So sort of yeah. giving that control over to someone like him. So I don't know if you can talk kind of first about Denzel and then about Robert Zemeckis. Well, the interesting thing, just the history of the movie is that I started writing it in 99. And then in 2004, 
I wrote and directed a movie for DreamWorks called Dreamer with Dakota Fanning and Kurt Russell, which was a horse racing movie. Uh, but I still had this movie. I had probably written half of it at that time. I used to just pick it up and put it down and pick it up and put it down. And I would take work on other movies to make a living. And after Dreamer was done, DreamWorks said to me, we want you to direct another movie for us. We had such a lovely experience with you. <laughs> and I was like, sure. And so they sent me a lot of scripts. And I considered directing a lot of these other movies. I've said no enough that they finally said, well, what is it you want to do? And I said, well, I have about 40 pages of this script that I've been kicking around. They're like, well, let's see it. So I sent it to them. And Stacy Snyder, who you know, was, Who's you know. been on this podcast. Yeah. And she was running DreamWorks at the time with Steven. And she read it. And she was like, wow. She's like, this is a really, again, R-rated drama. This is where we got into the place in the business where it was bad timing for that kind of movie because it wasn't what the marketplace was really looking for. So they were like, this is intense. But they were like, there's something here. So I made a small deal with them and I finished the script. I continued to do other work. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like 99, we made the movie in 2012. So it really was wow. a very long process, but I was always gonna direct the movie. So through the years, I had fits and starts of like meeting with a big actor who wanted to do the movie and trying to kind of get the movie off the ground and like, lots of things we had a strike we had lots of stuff went on it was like the movie just kind of could never get off the ground and i kept letting it go and my wife who you know mm -hmm. when i would go almost to go direct a movie she'd like why would you go do that you need to make this movie like this is the movie you want to make and i'm like but no one's going to make that movie with me so it kind of prevented me from directing another movie for a long time and i kept working as a screenwriter but one day i get a phone call they say you know robert zemeckis read the script and he wants to meet you. So mm. I drove up to Carpinteria and I sat with him for lunch and we ended up talking for six hours. And at about hour three, he said, look, would you really be okay with me directing this movie? I know you've been trying to make this movie for a long time. And I said, look, this movie's kind of killing me. I was <laughs> like, I would love for you to do this. And was that said, hard or were you were you thrilled because you know what kind of a director First of he all, is? I was like in awe of him yeah. given what he's done and given his passion for the movie and what I was trying to do, I kind of realized that I don't think the movie would have happened without him. I kind of said to him, look, I kind of need you to make this movie because then I can kind of maybe go on with my life somehow. <laughs> he said an interesting thing. He said, you know, I want you to come with me to do this. He said, because I want to rent your brain. He said, you know, you've been on this thing for 12 years. He's like, why don't you talk to your wife and see if you can come? you know, kind of thing. So he invited me in to be kind of a partner with him. Wow. And it was great because we went everywhere together and I helped him cast the movie. And I, I had a moment where Denzel, that was the other thing that happened first was that someone gave it to Denzel and he wanted to meet me. So I had this, I was in my office and I got this phone call. I picked it up. I was like, hello. And it was like, John, it's Denzel. And I was like, hello like you go through like how does denzel washington have my cell phone numbers the first thing that goes through your brain but uh he was like what are you doing thursday night and i was like uh I'm coming to see you and he's like yeah let's have dinner at the beverly hills hotel i'm like okay so i went home that night it's really funny because that thursday night was ling's birthday and we were supposed to go out to dinner and i said listen uh we're not having dinner for your birthday i'm having dinner with denzel washington so it was kind of funny but knowing ling i'm sure she was supportive yeah she was like yeah great um <laughs> So I had a good, long, funny dinner with Denzel at the Polo Lounge. And he said, look, I'm leaving to go make Safe House, 
in South Africa. He's like, but when I come back, I want to make this movie. It's like, okay. It was his kind of audition of me to see if he would do the movie with me as a director, which I think I kind of failed, but it's okay. I mean, he's Denzel Washington, and he had a couple of directors in mind, and one of them was Bob Zemeckis. So that's how the Zemeckis thing then happened. He read it, and we kind of knew that Denzel was very interested. So they then met, and then Denzel signed on, and you know there was some financial stuff that had to be worked out because, again, even in that version of the movie, we made the movie for not a lot of money. That was the studio's answer to, we don't make these kind of movies, R-rated dramas. It's just not in, but it was like, it was kind of undeniable when you had Zemeckis and Denzel for a very affordable number. Everybody knew that that was good business. As tough as it was thinking like, this is a hard movie. It's going to be hard to promote. It's going to be hard to get people in the seats. But they were like, we can't deny that combination. So that's kind of how the movie happened. It was kind of miraculous in a way. And can you talk about the mentorship of Robert Zemeckis, I mean, you've worked with a lot of people. You've worked in Hollywood a long time. And the first name that, before we jumped on, that jumped to mind from a person within the industry who had been a mentor to you was him. Can you talk about that mentorship? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just this odd thing of meeting him at the right time in my life where I had done enough. I had directed a movie that I wrote myself and I had written a fair number of movies and written on movies and I'd been kind of a producer on things too. So I'd was pretty sure-footed in the business and meeting him who was a guy who had done so much and won awards and he'd been making this digital cinema for a couple of years. He hadn't done a live action movie in a while. Polar Express and and those things. Yeah, Polar Express. And he was kind of in a moment of like, I want to make this movie. And I think everybody was like, wow, Zemeckis is going to make a live action movie. And that gave it a lot of energy. So I feel like he was at a point in his life and I was at an interesting point in my life. And the truth is, we just really hit it off. Like we we just really had a really easy relationship from the jump. Like we just made each other laugh. We just kind of connected. And that's what made the experience so great was like he treated me so fairly, so inviting, so respectful and said, come with me, you know, and I got to go there and be there every day and be involved every day with all the hard things that happened on a movie that I had a say in it and that I was able to kind of be helpful where I could and watch the movie kind of ultimately finally after so many years get made. And can you speak about, you're the person who wrote all these words that Denzel Washington is saying. Yeah. Can you speak to kind of what you envision these words meaning coming out of the mouth of this pilot and then you see, I mean, Denzel Washington may be our greatest living actor, top three, top five maybe, uh, what you had in mind and then sort of the level that Denzel was able to take it. Is there an example that you can think of? Well, he's amazing, which is no secret. And he has incredible presence. I mean, just in life, but on screen, it's just undeniable. The guy never has a false moment. And Bob and I sat with Denzel for days in a little hotel conference room kind of thing where we kind of went page by page and we just kind of read through things. Any questions he had, we could answer any little dialogue tweaks. He was very respectful of the script, Mm. um, very respectful of the script. And he just needed to wrap his head around it for himself. And he just would show up and kind of just, man, he just would deliver. It was remarkable to watch. I mean, it really was. It was, I knew then even, I knew enough to know then. I was like, this is really a special thing. And all the actors in the movie were incredible. I mean, John Goodman and Melissa Leo, 
Don Cheadle. It's like there was just such a cast of actors that kept coming in that I was like, these people are incredible. So they took a good script and made it great. It was really something to watch. So now I want to get to you a bit, John. I know you and Ling are, for people who don't realize, parent chairs of annual giving. You've done it for many years. And this is not just a typical volunteer leadership opportunity. This is a huge time commitment. <laughs> We've spent many, many evenings together working on yeah. behalf of Harbor West. Like I am paid to do this type of work. You and Ling are not, yet you put in so much time. And a story that you have told many times to, especially to new volunteers, is sort of the story of how annual giving actually impacted your life and the trajectory of you and your siblings. Um, and so right. I don't know if, if, if that is sort of an entree into, not that this isn't a fundraising pitch, this is just to get to your story. I don't know if you could share that as part of this podcast. I'll do a short version of it just to say that my mom got a job as a secretary, as they called it then, in the development office at Vassar College. And I was really young then, and we had moved from uh, New York City to upstate New York to Dutchess County. And that's where Vassar is in Poughkeepsie. So she didn't really know what she was doing. She, you know, got this job in development, not really even knowing what development was. And then after she had worked there for about five or six years, there was a day where everyone was laughing. And then she was like, what's the joke? She's like, oh, they're saying that they're extending this tuition remission program beyond the faculty and administration to the staff of the college, which to be clear is that the faculty members of Vassar and a lot of colleges, I would assume, get to go tuition-free. Their children get to go tuition-free if they're admitted to the school. So they were laughing, saying, like, what staff kids would actually ever get accepted to Vassar College? So my mom, being the original Tiger mom, went home and said to my oldest sister, like, you're never going to get into Vassar College. But if you did, you could go there because we could afford it because you'd get tuition-free. And that started this funny travail where it's like my oldest sister was an exceptional student in high school and got into Vassar, as did my next sister. Uh, my brother got in too, but decided to go to an engineering college. And then I went, I was a soccer player, which helped me. And I was a decent high school student. I'll give myself some credit. But the three of us went to Vassar and it was really like a life-changing thing. So it's like, for us, and Ling and I talk about this, it's like, because she was a financial aid kid too. And you guys met at Vassar. And we met at Vassar. And, you know, my experience at a college like Vassar was the reason that I think education is, it's kind of about opportunity and it's about access and it's about what you make of that opportunity. Because my experience at Vassar was I met young people from all over the world. My friends freshman year were from Brazil and Australia and New Jersey and, you know, Colorado. <laughs> they were from everywhere. And when I started thinking about really getting serious about working in the entertainment business, there was people in my cohort at Vassar who said to me like sophomore year, they're like, you're going to go to California, right? Get in the movie business. I was like, I am. And then by like junior year, I was saying to people, I I'm going to go to LA. I'm going to, I'm going to get in the movie business. It's like, and I don't know that I would have had the gumption to kind of do that if I wasn't with the people in school that I was with who believed those things and was like, no, no, we're going to do this. And I so appreciate that environment that I was in that was really kind of smart and clever and inclusive and challenging and like really kind of pushed and really believed that anything was somewhat possible. Yeah. And uh, I don't know that I would have had that experience elsewise. And surely that school was a place that without that help, I probably wouldn't have been able to go to. I was looking at 
division two soccer schools to try to get some money to help me go to college. So uh, yes, I met my wife, but my best friends still are people that I met there. You know, they shaped me. A lot of them ended up in the movie business too. And it was 1000% life changing, that college experience for me. So there's the peer group you're around that obviously gave you that confidence that oh, I might go to California then junior year saying, you know, I'm going to go there and I'm going to make a career for myself. There's also, you've made your career by and large as a writer. And I imagine there were English teachers who also might have had an influence. I don't know if you can speak about whether it was yeah. high school or college, kind of English teachers that maybe cultivated in you a passion for writing. Yeah, it's so funny because I was kind of a, a jock in high school, so I wasn't really... I didn't do the plays, but I always went to see them, always secretly thinking like, man, I'd like to do that. But I had a, Pat Verrett was my AP English teacher senior year, and that was the course that there wasn't a lot of athletes in that class, I'll tell you that. It was the kids who went to really, really top tier schools. It was like the top 20. It was like the top 20 kids in my class of 700 kids, mind you. It was an enormous high school. That's why wow. our sports was so good. And me. I should just clarify that. It was them and me. And uh, she was an incredible... We read everything there was to read. I mean, it was such a... See, if we were filming a movie, can you hear that siren? I can, yeah. We'd say, let's hold. Um but uh, we read, man, so many, like we just did, had to do so much reading of all these classics and it, it was incredible. But I remember writing my first essay for her. It was some sort of comparative literature paper and she put it down on my desk after grading it and there was a huge red X through the first two paragraphs. And she was like, you will never do that again. And I was like, okay. She really taught me how to write, which is I forever thank her for the fact that like she just crushed my writing. Because look, writing an analytical English paper is much different than writing a clever story about something. To be able to express yourself concisely and smartly, you know, was really what she was about. I mean, as well as grammar and everything else. But that was remarkable. That was a really hard class that I worked really hard in. But I got inspired by the literature in that class. And then my senior year at Vassar, I took a course with this woman, Elizabeth Sokolow, who I think, you know, she was a writer, and it was this composition class, which I was terrified of the English department of Vassar, because everyone always said, man, they're really hard graders, and I was like, I don't need to fail out of college. It's like, I don't want to mess with the English department, but I took this composition class, and it was a year-long course, and it was great, because you could write what you want, you know, and I wrote a series of stories about this one character, and I wrote this, and I wrote that, and I really liked her, and I liked her comments, and she was really inspiring, and at the end of the year, I went to see her because I drove to California the day after I graduated Vassar, literally. Like I graduated Vassar, got in a car and drove to California. But I went to see her in her office hours, like after school was over and everything, it was just senior week or whatever. And she said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm just curious what grade I'm going to get in this course for a full year. And she was like, really? I said, yeah, I'm just like curious. And she was like, you're getting an A. And I was like, really? Because like I didn't get a ton of A's. I got you know, I said, well, I'm leaving. So where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to California. I'm moving to California. She goes, for what? I said, I'm going to be an actor. And she laughed. And I said, what are you laughing about? She said, I'm sorry. She said, I just thought you'd be a writer. Wow. And it stuck with me. It's it? like years later that I was like, oh, right. That woman was important. She was really inspiring and really kind of treated me like a peer because she's a writer. And she was kind of like, I love what you're doing. I like the voice. And different things that I learned from her about unlocking your brain and being creative and not to be judgmental and to kind of like explore ideas. It was really, that was really important, that class for me. And it was kind of an accident. 
Well, before we go, John, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles. We are known for our movies, of course, our food and our climate. So the first question is, what is John Gayton's favorite movie? I'm going to answer it this way. I believe that there's so much to your experience with a movie that's determined by when and where and with whom you see that movie. True. Okay, so I'm going to preface with that because I can remember it was a summer night of my junior year of college, and I went with my girlfriend and my sister and her husband to see the movie Bull Durham. And we waited in a ticket holder's line outside the theater. It was a warm summer night and it was packed. People were dying to get in to see this movie. And I went in and the movie theater was packed. And that movie started and the organ played and we started to see all this sports nostalgic memorabilia. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I was like, I want to be in the movie business because of this movie. I still very much love that movie. And I love sports movies. I loved the movie Goodfellas. I remember when it came out again, I was just living out here, a struggling like, actor, I think. Or, and I sat, that movie could have gone for 15 hours. I'd have sat through every second of it. I loved that movie. What is your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Either something you and Ling have at home, or is there a restaurant that you love? Ling is a great cook, and she loves to cook. And so I would almost say anything my wife makes is a pretty good answer. Is there an example, one example of something she makes that's great? Oh, man, she makes fried chicken. She's from the South. Right, she's from Arkansas. Have you ever had anybody make you homemade fried chicken? I have not. No, it's, it's a bit of a process. It's a, real, it's a real thing. And when she makes fried chicken, that's, that's a special event. Third question, what's your favorite place? in LA? Could be a street or a part of town? I'm a New York Yankees fan. I love baseball. But I'll tell you, I like going to Dodger games. Ah. I just do. I like sitting in Dodger Stadium and seeing the palm trees. Because when I was a kid and the Yankees played the Dodgers in the World Series, I remember sitting there and it was like watching pregame and I'm like, you know, it's fall in New York. Right. It's kind of cold and blustery. And I'm like looking out and it's like, it's 88 degrees in Los Angeles and there's palm trees beyond the left field fence. I'm like, this is crazy. So I do like Dodger Stadium. I like the Hollywood Bowl. It's kind of a beautiful place to be. The beach, obviously. I like to run on the beach. I run the bike path at the beach. The last question. I am the parent, as you know, of two little girls, one who's three and a half and the other's nine months. You are the parent of three one in college and a couple of Harvard Westlake students as well. Last question I ask every guest, what is your best parenting advice? Either that has been given to you or that is an original to you? I've had conversations that sometimes some of my best dad speeches are be confident and be kind. In life, it's not just for kids. I just think it's for all of us that it's like most of the times we get in trouble when fear enters any situation, whether mm. it's a school, so I'm afraid of a course, or I'm afraid of a teacher, I'm afraid of a classmate. It's like some fear about something, they're gonna say something, I'm gonna feel some way. It's like, have some confidence, be confident, but always be kind. The other thing too is like with kids, there's a parenting thing, to be mindful to not say, how did you do? Mm. <laughs> and say, how are you? How are you doing? <laughs> Ask how they're doing, not kind of what they're doing or, or especially what the product of what they're doing is. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how did you do? It seems like, geez, 
that seems like that's overly important. And I know we live in a world of like, what's the result? But uh, I think it's important to try to focus on how are you? I think that's a great answer. So John Gatons, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for all you do for Harvard Westlake. I know I've told you a thousand times, but I'll, I'll tell you again. Thank you on behalf of all the people listening who benefit from the work that you do at Harvard Westlake. And uh, thanks for the time today and for joining the supporting cast. Cool. Thanks, Eli. Thanks, Eli.